0: Earth to Humans
1: Earth to Humans
2: Earth to
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. My name is Serena Simons, and today we're diving deep into what Derek Jensen, Lear Keith, and Max Wilbert call bright green lies. Their new book explores how the environmental movement lost its way through so-called green technology like solar, wind, and hydro, and how the movement, they argue, is pushing to destroy the earth under the guise of environmental protection. Leading today's conversation is Julia Barnes, producer of the documentary companion to the book, Bright Green Lies. Both the film and the book unveil deeply disturbing, quote, green practices that we've all come to know and love as the answer to our biggest environmental problems, when in reality, a deeper examination of those limited solutions may be required in order to manage our climate crisis. It's a great conversation today. Here is Julia Barnes, Derek Jensen, Lear Keith, and Max Wilbert, here on the Earth to Human podcast.
0: We're in the midst of a six major extinction
3: of life on this planet.
2: Paper or plastic is really not the question at this point. It's life versus a bare rock.
3: High voltage, keep out, authorized personnel.
2: What's going on back here? This movement that was so honorable and so impassioned has turned into something completely different. It's all become, how do we continue to fuel this destruction?
4: There is a push for a 100% renewable world. What they don't talk about are the unseen harms caused by these technologies.
0: You may not directly be seeing any smoke come out of any smokestacks, but that doesn't mean it's not happening.
2: Companies are involved in these activities to make money. They're not trying to displace or change other things.
3: What they're actually talking about is sustaining high energy ways of life at the expense of the natural world.
0: I'm not comfortable with an industry that deceives me about something as important as climate change. They claim it is good for the environment when actually it is
3: harmful for the environment. The shit ain't green. The
0: genesis of the book was a debate that was set up 10 years ago for uh, by Orion between me and somebody who came up with the phrase bright green. And what the bright greens are, people who believe that civilization is not inherently unsustainable and that with just a little bit of tweaking or a lot of tweaking and technological escalation that the civilization can be made to be sustainable. And I, at first, I wanted to do this interview, I'm sorry, this debate by Britain, because I knew the other person was just going to lie. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, that didn't work out. So I had to do it over the phone. And he did, in fact, lie about a bunch of things. But because it was over the phone, I couldn't spend 15 minutes to look up each one of his lies. And I did, I couldn't predict what he was going to not tell the truth about. So he said things like, we can currently have a society where that does away with mining because all metals will be recycled. And it took me 15 minutes afterwards to realize, I mean, to do the research to find out that that's completely untrue, that even when you have something like copper, which is, has a very high percentage of recyclability and is recycled at a very high rate, because you have an economy that is growing and is based on infinite growth, you still need mines for new materials. And at the same time, I was, as so many environmentalists are, really upset that the environmental movement has gone from being about protecting wild places and wild beings to being about sustaining this culture a little bit longer. Just 10 minutes ago, I got off an interview I was doing where one of the questions he asked is, so we hear that in order to be an environmentalist, you have to have solar panels on your roof and you have to drive an electric car. And I basically said that that broke my heart because environmentalism is supposed to not be about buying these things, but instead about protecting wildlife and well-being.
2: Wild I mean, when I became an environmentalist, which I did at a very young age, I mean, I, I was definitely a child in search of a movement because when I looked out, I could see that the wild had been destroyed. I mean, I grew up in a really kind of suburban urban environment, and it was something that meant. And my deep, deepest longing was for the forest and the wolves, which I had never seen, um, but I wanted them. So when I found environmentalism, I mean, that was the point of the movement was to protect those creatures in those places from constant destruction. And then it flipped. Somewhere along the way, it became... How do we continue to fuel their destruction? Um, it's like the whole, the whole point of the movement became: we need to continue this way of life, and we're doing terrible damage to the climate, which we are, no question. We've wrecked the atmosphere, um, but we need this to continue. So, what can we think of that will let us keep moving um, with this? level of consumption which is to say destruction of the living world and so some people wanted to use wind and solar and biomass and all of these um, so there's a few problems one is the project is wrong we say in the book they're solving for the wrong variable and that's what they're doing because the variable to be solved for is how do we save the planet not how do we continue to consume it how do we save it which means we have to stop consuming it So they got the project completely backwards. That's problem number one, but problem number two is it can't be done. Not a single one of these technologies is less destructive than oil and gas. They're all equally as horrifying, including in terms of the greenhouse gases they emit. So there's really, there's not even any reason to try it. Um, But even taking that, even when we set that aside, none of them actually provide what oil and gas do. Um, They're functionally irreplaceable in the economy that we have so there's literally no way to do it even if you thought it was a good idea which I don't but even if you did they're lying about it and like we didn't call this book bright green myths or bright green fairy tales we called it bright green lies because we're being lied to and we have been for 30 years now and they've hijacked the movement now if you go to any environmental conference or protest or you know the demand is always that we need more funding for solar and wind panels and research, and they've just got it completely backwards. So um, I think the three of us really felt compelled to write this book. And I like to think of what Rachel Carson said, which was, there would be no peace for me if I remained silent.
3: Yeah, I guess I would just add that, you know, being uh, from a younger generation than Derek and Lierre, you know, I grew up in the environmental movement that was already coming to be dominated by these technologies are the solution. These are going to save the world. They're going to stop global warming. They're going to lead us to a utopia. That was already uh, starting to become a very dominant narrative by the time I was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and really starting to, you know, develop uh, my brain and, and think about these global problems in a more serious adult type way. Um, So, you know, we've seen this shift uh, continue, you know, since over the past decade, uh, the movement, the environmental movement has become even more captured than it used to be by this focus on industrial technology as the solution to the problems that are caused by industrial technology and industrial civilization, right? So, um, young people who are coming up today who are seeing the news about global warming, who are really concerned about what this culture is doing to the planet, which I think most, the vast majority of people are really worried about these things uh, and don't know what the hell to do, you know, but they're, they're really concerned. They see the headlines and maybe they don't um, feel like they have any power to change things. And, uh, you know, these technologies, these, these, as we call them, bright green lies, They help maintain an illusion that the modern, high-energy, highly consumptive way of life can continue. That this way of life can go on and that we can just change the energy source and everything will be okay. And that illusion itself is a massive problem. That prevents us from actually getting to the real solutions which are that we need more fundamental change. We need basically to rearrange the entire structure of our global society if we want to have a future for life on this planet. I mean, we're living in the sixth mass extinction event, which some people call an extermination event more properly uh, because, you know, these species aren't aren't naturally going extinct. They're being driven to extinction by the, the activities of this culture. So, you know, for me, as somebody who... I uh, was lucky enough to, even though I grew up in a city, just to spend time out in the woods as a kid to have those experiences of connection to the natural world, playing on the beach and swimming in the lakes and, uh, you know, hiking in the mountains and just falling in love with this, this planet that we live on that's so beautiful that's so rich with life that's so incredibly uh, resilient and diverse um, You know, it was clear to me from the beginning where my allegiance really lay, I guess is what I'm trying to say, you know, and there was a period of a few years there when I was young where I got confused by these technologies because all the news websites, all the environmentalists around me were telling me, this is the way to go. This is going to save the world. Um, But the more I learned, the, the more that narrative fell apart. And that led to us writing this book in hopes that we can, you know, help break through those lies for other people.
4: So let's talk about how harmful this green technology industry really is for life on the planet. Because often when we bring up the problems that these technologies cause, people will brush them off as small or trivial sacrifices that need to be made. Can we talk about how destructive this industry actually is?
0: Well, first, um, don't you love it when someone expresses how small the sacrifices are when those sacrifices are being foisted upon someone else. It's easy to say that, well, you know, the loss of this run of salmon is no big deal uh, because we need the energy to smelt aluminum the cans. And when, when you are not one of the salmon, you're not one of the bears who live on the salmon, you're not one of the trees who live on the salmon, you're not one of the humans who live on the salmon. And uh, so they say this all the time, It's it's a small loss, but well, so you can give up your pinky so that somebody else can have a car, and then you can give up your thumb so that somebody else can have Wi-Fi. This is what this culture does, is make everybody else pay the prices so i mean they they say that one of the cliches of addiction is that addicts don't usually change until they hit bottom and one of the problems is that those who are addicted to exploiting others they're not the ones who hit bottom it's the ones who are exploiting who hit bottom so they have no reason to change and If you were to ask desert tortoises if they want for there to be solar panels put on their home, they would say no. And if salmon were to be asked whether they want dams on their rivers, is that a sacrifice it's okay for you to make so that these humans can have cans, I think they would say no. And so that's sort of an overview, and then I'll let somebody else talk about specifics.
2: Every last one of these technologies is still, first of all, utterly dependent on fossil fuel. You need to understand the scale of the mines that are required for this, um, especially with the rare earth mines. So they're called rare earths because they don't appear on the planet in like veins, the way that say copper or silver does. They're very dispersed throughout um, the, the soil that they're in, the ground that they're in. So what it means is just huge amounts of the landscape has to be dug up by this these absolutely I mean, grotesque level equipment is used. And this is where diesel, you have to have diesel fuel to run those giant dump trucks and you know, all the mining equipment, it, it's just hellacious. And then it all uses vast quantities of water because you have to then sort out the, the rare earth that you are after has to somehow be extracted. And that also uses incredibly toxic solvents to get to them, and some of these mines are so big they can be seen from outer space. So that's what we're talking about is miles upon miles of the world being turned into dust essentially toxic dust. Uh, mining is one of the very first forms of human slavery because it's such a wretched activity that the only way to force people to do it is force, uh, there's just, people just aren't going to do it otherwise. Um, and in fact, the the Mines in Rome were essentially a death sentence. So they were penal colonies and you weren't really expected to live more than maybe nine months at the, at the outside. So if you, were, if you were damned to the mines, it was the end. Um, and there are mines that are even older. Like there's a mine in present day Jordan um, that is, we talk about it in the book, but you know it's 2000 years old and it's still toxic on that site. The plants that try to grow there, have damaged reproductive organs, and the goats that grow there, or the, you know that graze there, are actually highly valued because they don't have parasites. The reason they don't have parasites, of course, is that their guts are with So that's 2,000 years, and there's still like a 30 foot or 30 meter high, I can't remember it's 30 feet or 30 meters, mm. 30 meter high flag pile. So it's the leftover tailings of the mine is still there all these years later. That's one copper mine, one. And this is what we're going to have to do to the planet to get all the copper that they need to make all this, you know, all these electronic gadgets that are supposed to save the world. These are the, these are the most destructive processes that humans have ever invented. It's at the level of toxic. Um, and, but we're being told this is what we have to do to save the planet.
3: So just a few of the specific harms that are going to be caused by this you know, so-called green energy transition that's being proposed. people need to understand the huge industrial scale of this uh, energy generation project that's being pushed forward. In California, for example, uh, Mark Jacobson is an engineer who has a plan to power all the states in the U.S. with wind, water, and solar power. And in California, his plan would cover two and a half percent of the entire state in wind turbines. That's an area four times the size of Yosemite National Park, uh, 4,000 square miles of land. That's new industrial energy development. So it's not like this is happening in a vacuum and the other 97.5% of the land is in great shape, right? Most of the rest of the land in California has already been degraded by oil and gas industry, by mining, by logging, by urban sprawl, all these different problems, freeways, crisscrossing. Uh, through the landscape, just slicing up this habitat into into ribbons. And now you have this additional industrial assault. And it's not to save the planet. It's to generate electricity for industrial civilization, right? It's to meet this insatiable energy demand that industry uh, generates in this culture. So here's another example Again, Mark Jacobson, his plan calls for 3.8 million five megawatt wind turbines to be built. That's so that's 19 million megawatts total. And to, to give you an idea of the scale of that type of construction project, the Hoover Dam used about 211 thousand tons of concrete and 12 and thousand tons of steel when it was built. So the scale of Mark Jacobson's proposed uh, wind turbine plan just for the wind turbines alone is the equivalent of building something like 60,000 Hoover dams in 12 years. So that's 13 Hoover dams per day. And just to give one final example, a friend sent this over to me today, a German newspaper reported that most of the Lithium, cobalt, and nickel sulfate, which is produced in Europe today, uh, these are all key ingredients in electric vehicle batteries, come from a single 25-square-mile open pit mine in Finland. 25 square miles. And demand is expected to grow 700% within the next nine years. Nine years. That's, you know, essentially almost doubling every year. Another seven such mines are now under planning or development in Europe alone.
0: If they if they followed Jacobson's plan, it would require one and a half times the iron that is mined all over the world for a year. This is that's crazy to call this a an environmentally friendly plan.
2: All of these installations for wind and solar, it would take more land, it's gonna take up more land every year than agriculture urban sprawl and mining was, and mining put together like that's how much land is required because fossil fuel is really dense and the little bit of sun and wind we get every day is never going to match that so the only way you can even attempt it is just you need a vast surface area to be dedicated to either collecting wind or collecting sun so it, it's just this huge amount of land and i, I I just don't know how anyone who calls themselves an environmentalist can decide we're just going to sacrifice what's left of these wild places um, they're either going to take the trees for biomass or they're going to take you know the mountains and the deserts for this, for solar and wind and that and that's the end of the wild oh and the oceans they're going to mine the oceans as well and then try to use tide you know collect energy from the tides which of course is the death of all the ocean creatures there so it's this is the end i mean this is all that's left
4: We hear a lot of the time about countries that have supposedly switched to 100% renewable energy. But as you point out in the book, these claims are often misleading. Could you talk about why that is?
0: I have three problems with the statement that they are using 100% renewable energy. The first is 100%, the second is renewable, and the third is energy. And 100% comes from Naomi Klein, for example, has talked about how Munich and other cities have pledged to go 100% renewable energy by 2025 or 2050. And the Sierra Club does the same thing. I'm not picking on Naomi Klein. Lots and lots of people do this. Politicians do it. Mainstream environmental organizations do it. Uh, Cities do it. Los Angeles is going 100% renewable energy, they say. Well, first off, they are confusing electricity with energy because... Los Angeles is not going to suddenly get rid of motorcycles, semi-tractors, and cars. Uh, Munich is not going to switch over its oil uh, heaters for buildings or coal heaters for buildings. Um, Electricity is generally about 20% of total energy use. And they are consistently mistaking, I'm sorry, they're consistently claiming 100% energy when they mean 100% electricity. So you can reduce all their claims from 100% to 20% off the top. Second, I have problems with the word renewable because when they talk about renewable, what they're generally meaning, what they're implying is wind and solar. But in all but two of the European countries, the primary forms of renewable electricity and energy are biomass. And what biomass is, is cutting down forests, pelleting them and burning them, and or it's raising crops like corn or turnips to be turned into a fuel to burn. And although wind and solar get all the headlines, biomass is the vast majority of what has been increased in terms of actual use. And Biomass is, what that really means is the bodies of trees from forests, and it's not, they claim it's carbon neutral, they claim it's renewable, but there is no forest on the planet that has survived more than three rotations of being cut. It's, it's deforestation. And they also call it carbon neutral, and the reason they argue it's carbon neutral is because the trees sequestered the carbon at some time in the past, And you're just releasing that carbon that has been sequestered in the past. Well, if that's the case, then everything's carbon neutral because algae sequestered oil in the past and um, soils sequestered carbon in the past. And we're just releasing the stuff that was already there. It's like taking money out of the bank that, well, taking money out of the bank that somebody else put in is what it is. Or they also argue that it's carbon neutral because the trees may eventually grow back. Well, that's like saying, okay, you put money in the bank, I'm taking it out, but it's not really theft. And in fact, it's money neutral, because at some point in the next 100 years, you might put more money in the bank. And any accounting firm that tried this for a corporation saying, yeah, our books are balanced, because at some point in the future, we may make the money back, they would be in prison. And that's the sort of accounting that is done for this, that biomass is considered carbon neutral, even though you're cutting down forests entire.
2: So the other problem with biomass is that when you burn trees like that, you're actually using, uh, it's 20, it releases 20% more um, greenhouse gases than even coal. So it's actually one of the worst forms of ener- energy that, that we have. So A, it's worse and they're pretending that it's actually neutral when in fact, it's worse than the worst one we're using. And then the other problem, of course, if you count in to the greenhouse gas emissions, the energy involved in chipping it and then shipping it across the ocean because most of it is coming from the United States and going to Europe, that adds another 20% greenhouse gases. So it's 40% worse than coal, but they're pretending that it's somehow neutral. And this is the great German miracle, is clear-cutting the southeastern United States, releasing more greenhouse gases, but pretending that you have somehow achieved this miracle on one sunny day in, on a weekend in Munich. So it's just a lie.
3: The other thing that I would just add to that is that, you know, the only real measure of greenhouse gases that matters ultimately is the global level. And if you look at global greenhouse gas emissions, they're trending up, right? The coronavirus crisis has driven them down a small amount, but other than that blip, and you look at the economic recession of uh, 2007, 2008, that drove it down a little bit. But other than that, they're on a steady upward trend, global emissions and and the global concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That's the number that matters. And so when you have these countries like Germany claiming that they've made these massive emissions reductions and look how great we're doing, In many cases, what they've actually done is they've outsourced their emissions. And you can read about this in the peer-reviewed literature. This isn't just stuff we're making up. Uh, Energy analysts in Germany understand what's happening here. Uh, These emissions have largely been outsourced because the most dirty, polluting industries have simply left the country because the regulations are stricter and they can do their business more cheaply uh, elsewhere. And so emissions may have gone down in Germany if you just measure those, but they've gone up somewhere else and the products that are being made in China, in Southeast Asia, the products that are being made in Eastern Europe in these highly polluting factories are getting shipped right back into Germany, right? But the emissions are counted uh, elsewhere. So, you know, we talk in the book about just like criminals launder money to hide where their, you know, their dirty cash came from, uh, businesses and governments are sort of engaging in this carbon laundering process where they're able to fudge the numbers. It's a very complicated uh, global economy that we live in. It's very interconnected. And if you, you know, make a few tweaks here and there to how you count your carbon budget, it's pretty easy to make it look like you're clean and green. Meanwhile, those global numbers keep creeping up.
0: Solar photovoltaics are an example of a claim by Bright Greens for a victory that is actually a defeat for the planet that they will say explicitly that part of the German miracle is that the Germans subsidized the solar industry in China so much that it drove the price of solar photovoltaics down. And If you look on the internet anywhere, you'll see claims again and again, solar is getting cheaper and cheaper. You also see that uh, China is controlling the solar market. Well, what they don't ever tell you is that the reason that they're so much cheaper is because the pollution laws are so much more lax in China and stuff that would cost you you know $20,000 to do in Germany because of stricter pollution regulations now costs you $10,000 to do in China because you dump the stuff onto villages and don't care and so this great victory for the environment and for those who oppose colonialism, supposedly, is, um, yet again, um, more pollution in the hinterlands.
4: There's a great thought experiment in the book that looks at the efficiency of a car and whether it would actually be better for the natural world to have a vehicle that is more efficient or really low efficiency. Could you explain more about that?
3: So one of the examples that we dove into in the book is the example of efficiency of cars. You know, there's this general idea in the environmental movement that more efficiency is always better. And, you know, it makes sense if, you know, you heat your cabin with wood heat like I do, the less wood you have to burn to actually keep your cabin warm, the less wood you need, right? That means you 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 know for for example here we get our wood as waste from uh, one of our roommates who works for a local tree company and so you know we get the scraps and we use that to heat our house so the less that that we uh, that we burn the less we need the less we have to haul the less we have to split it just reduces the amount of work we have to do by quite a bit you know and um, people think the same sort of thing in respect to a car you know, if you have better gas mileage on your car, you're going to burn less gas. And that means less greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That means less smog, less ozone, all the good things, right? Well, that's one way to look at it. But the analysis that we did in the book was a thought experiment where we said, you know, what would be better for the planet? A car that gets 100 miles to the gallon or a car that gets one mile to the gallon? And we argue in the book that the car that gets 100 miles to the gallon is actually worse for the planet. And it's because when you have a car that is that efficient, it makes travel a lot easier. It makes travel a lot cheaper. And that incentivizes more people to buy cars. That's going to drive down the costs of car production, because on a per unit produced basis, you know, the more cars that are pumped out of a factory, the more profitable the company will be and they can drive down prices per car for the consumers even further so cars get more affordable and then the more cars people have. That starts to affect the entire culture on a social and a political level, so you start to see city governments regional governments shifting their budgets to build more roads build more highways build more parking lots. Uh, Maybe suburbs become incentivized and urban sprawl becomes incentivized because more and more people have cars. Now, on the other hand, if your car only gets one mile to the gallon, you know, we describe it as being like a a pricey motorized wheelbarrow, essentially, in the book. It's just not worth it to drive your car very far if you're paying, you know, what amounts to basically $3 per mile right now. So uh, lower efficiency in that case actually results in reduced consumption. And this is obviously a simplified example, but this is a generalized uh, example of Jevons Paradox. Jevons was a, Stanley, William Stanley Jevons was an economist in the early era of the Industrial Revolution in England. I think he was active in the 1840s and he wrote a book called The Coal Question. He was tasked with the government by looking into the coal industry, uh, how it worked, how they produced their goods, uh, what was efficient, what was not, and so on. And in his book, he shows that there was rapidly increasing efficiency in the steam engines that were the main way that fossil fuels were being burned at that time. So steam engines were in the trains. They were all steam trains. Steam engines you know, pumped the water out of the coal mines so they could dig more coal. Um, they used steam engines on, on steamships to move uh, trade goods all around the country and around the world, really. And these engines were getting more and more efficient. And people predicted that because of this rise in efficiency, the amount of coal that was being burned would go down. Makes sense, right? But what Jevin found was that essentially the increasing efficiency of these steam engines drove down the costs of running them for the companies that that owned these railroads and these other steam engines. That gave them more profits, which they then reinvested in expanding their business. So those more efficient steam engines led directly to the growth of business, which meant more trains, more steamships, more mines being dug. So overall coal use was driven up precisely because efficiency was rising. So, you know, this is, I think, just one example of how, uh, you know, so many of these bright green lies if you just take a very cursory look at the issue, if you don't really uh, examine it in detail and figure out what's going on, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. You know, a lot of people still believe that just efficiency is always good, no matter what. But we always have to ask, efficiency for what? Efficiency for the sake of what? You know, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, going out and hunting a deer in the meadows near your house and being efficient in the way you use that deer, you know, not wasting any of the meat, um, you know, using it in a respectful way, and the efficiency of an industrial product, the efficiency of a factory assembly line. Um, And in many cases, efficiency backfires. That's what Jevin tells us, that you often have this rebound effect. The other example we use in the book is from the Las Vegas area. Las Vegas, for those who don't know, you know, big city in the desert. There's not much water there. It uses the Colorado River as its water source. And they've basically been using as much water as they possibly can uh, for decades now. And the Colorado River no longer reaches the ocean. But because of an agreement between different states and between the U.S. and Mexico. Las Vegas only gets a certain amount of water every year, and they've been using all of it every year for a long time. So, because of that, they've had a big efficiency uh, push uh, to, to reduce the amount of water usage. Now, that, that efficiency has been pretty successful. They've increased, they've uh, reduced the per capita water use by quite a lot over the past decade, 15 years. The problem is they're not doing that to reduce the amount of water they take from the river. They're not doing that to allow more water to flow downstream to the delta where jaguars and dolphins used to live. That's now a total desert. Uh, They're doing it. And what's happening is the extra water that's being freed up by the efficiency is going to new suburbs. It's going to new golf courses. It's going to new suburban sprawl. It's being used to cause more destruction of the planet, to facilitate more destruction of the planet. So, again, you have this total... Uh, opposite effect of what so many people would expect and you know that's what we're trying to point out in the book is that we need to be very attentive to these things and we can't just rely on what the government tells us what corporations are telling us or what a lot of these big mainstream environmental groups are telling us because as the title of the book says as said earlier they're lies
2: the other problem is that when they add new energy sources into the mix Um, it's always additional. It's never to subtract one. So humans forever burned wood and then they figured out how to use coal. So they didn't stop burning wood. They added coal in. Now there's more energy for humans to use and they used it. And then the next thing that happened was um, oil. All the oil was bubbling up in Pennsylvania and wherever and they figured out how to use it. And they didn't take trees or coal off. They just added oil on. Now there's an even bigger pool for humans to draw from. Then natural gas came online and it's the same thing. Then nuclear energy started and it's like the partridge in the pear tree. Like it just keeps adding on. There's never any that are removed. So it's just another way to to say Jevons paradox is completely true. Every single time humans add more, they just add more and they use it. They never take any off. So these tiny little slivers of industrial energy that have been added from solar and wind, even if there were no other problems, They never take energy off. They just add it in and then industrial humans use it. So the more we make available, the more humans will use is really the, the moral of the story. And it's not a pretty one.
0: There was a study done of, I don't know, 150 materials or something about whether more efficient use led to decreased demand. And it was not true for copper, for iron, iron, any of the the mined materials. Um, The only material uses that have gone down in the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years are things like asbestos that were discovered to be uh, highly dangerous. And also, interestingly, wool, because it's been replaced by by polyester. And that's not... Even that doesn't even show Jevons paradox not to be true because it's simply substitution as opposed to more efficient use, making it less frequent. Every single material, it's the same story. If you learn how to use it more efficiently, more cheaply, you use more of it.
4: Max, do you want to talk a little bit about the harms caused by electric cars and what you're working on right now with Protect Decker Pass?
3: Yeah, so in the process of researching this book, we've we're looking into electric cars, electric car batteries, energy storage. These play a big role in the bright green lies. They're very important to industry. They're very important to these people who believe that technology is going to save the planet. And what we found is, you know, the same sort of litany of horrors that you see with, with all these industrial projects, honestly. What we found was, you know, mining that blows up mountains and leaves water toxified for thousands of years. What we found was, you know, these supply chains that are embedded in networks of human trafficking, prostitution, sexual exploitation, uh, you know, worker exploitation, indigenous people being forced off their lands and having their traditional livelihoods destroyed. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who are uh, associated with these projects. Uh, end up getting screwed over. And that's definitely the case when it comes to lithium. You know, we document in the book a couple examples. I was just reading through this section last night in preparation for uh, another interview, and I was reading about the destruction in Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile of the lithium mining there that is chewing through these remote desert regions in the salt flats um, in the, the high mountainous regions of Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile, I was reading about uh, Tibet. There's a lot of lithium mining in Tibet, where, which is leaving rivers toxified, leaving all the fish dead, um, leaving these local communities with nowhere to go. So I think it's really important that people recognize that electric cars are not a solution to the environmental problems we face. You know, a decade or 15 years ago, people were recognizing that cars were the problem, right? Not the solution. Cars themselves were part of the problem. And uh, that would have been a very common understanding in the environmental movement. Today, so many people seem to believe that driving electric car is somehow good for the planet. It's not. It's just a different type of damage in a few ways than, uh, than driving a fossil fuel car. But, uh, you know, for the past couple months now, I have been involved in fighting a proposed open pit lithium mine at Thacker Pass, Nevada. And Thacker Pass is part of the Sagebrush Steppe. It's in the Great Basin bioregion. And a Canadian mining company has proposed a 17,000 acre mining project on this site. They're in the final permitting processes right now. Uh, it looks like they're going to get all the permits they need to go ahead with this project. There's major demand for lithium. Uh, like I was saying earlier, talking about the mine in, in, uh, in Finland, the demand for electric vehicle batteries and grid energy storage bat- batteries is skyrocketing. It's growing so fast. And that's causing you know mine projects like this to just pop up all over the place. Uh, because of this skyrocketing demand, you know, an environmental review process that normally would have taken four years was shortened to less than one. Local people feel like they weren't adequately consulted, indigenous people feel like their concerns were ignored. Nobody talked to them and got their input on this massive industrial project in the middle of their traditional territories, like burial grounds, ceremonial sites, archaeological sites, you know, all of the things that. Uh, you can think of hunting and gathering grounds that are still used to this day um, by Paiute and Shoshone people. So this mine would basically involve blowing up Thacker Pass, which is incredible habitat for sage grouse, greater sage grouse, for pronghorn antelope, for mule deer, for bobcats, for uh, a huge abundance of wildlife, 100-plus-year-old sagebrush, Um, An endemic snail species that only lives in the springs up on the mountains in Thacker Pass. Um, Lahontan cutthroat trout in the streams who are a threatened, federally listed threatened species. I mean, this is not a benign project. It's your typical open pit strip mine being proposed by a transnational mining corporation. It's going to result in the complete devastation of the ecology and the local communities here. But, uh, you know, some people are saying this is a good thing because we need electric cars. We don't. We don't need electric cars. You know, for the vast majority of our existence on this planet, most people didn't have an electric car. Most people on this planet don't have a car today at all. There are only about one and a half billion cars on the planet, which means, you know, there are, what, six billion people on this planet, more or less, who don't have a car today. And they're getting by, right? We don't need electric cars; they're a luxury good. there is this uh, this good that we have become used to in a car culture like this. you know the The, the culture has been set up around cars, but they're not necessary for our existence. So what we're looking at is the destruction of the planet for unnecessary luxury consumer goods, and that is the exact same story that has been playing out, you know, for the past 200 years and actually a lot longer than that. Uh, So we're fighting to stop this mine. We set up a protest camp on the GPS coordinates of the mine on January 15th, and the protest has been continuous since then. We're getting a lot of support from people in the community, uh, Native folks, conservative ranchers and farmers. You know, it turns out people don't want their water to be poisoned and their mountain to be blown up Uh, when it really comes down to it. It's sort of easy to uh, be out of sight, out of mind when it's somewhere else, but when it's right behind your house, when it's in your watershed, all of a sudden it becomes very clear how destructive these things are, Uh, you know, and people sometimes decry that as like being a NIMBY you know, and it's, it's true, we need to extend our analysis to other places. It's not okay if it's somebody else's watershed getting blown up and not our own. Uh, but, you know, people also say that, like, it's a bad thing. Why shouldn't people want to defend the land where they live? Um, of course, people should want to do that. So we're fighting, we're organizing a prayer run of 273 miles just finished a couple days ago. Um, led by Native folks from the area, um, and elders brought it home the last half mile up the hill to the protest camp. And, you know, people are fighting for the water, for the Golden Eagles, for the land. And we're going to try and stop it, but it's going to be a tall order because this is a bipartisan project. You know, Trump pushed through this this, uh, lithium mine. Trump designated lithium as a critical mineral for national security. And the Biden administration is all in on electric vehicles and lithium mining. So, uh, you know, destroying the planet to produce more luxury goods, more profits, that's a firmly bipartisan thing in the US. And so it's going to have to be a, you know, grassroots uh, upsurge if it's going to have a chance of, if we're going to have a chance of, of pushing back against this.
4: All of these bright green lies are attempting to solve for the wrong variable. And what are some of the things that environmentalists should be focusing their attention on? Where should we be putting our energy? What are some of the root causes of these problems that we really need to address?
0: The primary thing we should do is to protect wild places and wild beings. And um, I mean, some of the most important environmentalists of the last 50 years would be the Tompkins and the Schoenards. And they have set aside millions of acres, um, protected millions of acres. And the same is true for those who do the same thing on a smaller scale. Um, This doesn't address your question of what are the root problems, which somebody else can address here if they want. But I think by far the most important thing that we need to do is to, uh, well, really the, the primary thing we need to do is to switch our loyalty away from the economic system and to the natural world. And this is part of the problem with the, with the mainstream environmental movement is its loyalty is with the economic system not the wild not wild nature and they're often quite explicit about this anyway so the the most important thing we need to do is is make our loyalty to the natural world and then, then then from there everything becomes technical and from there one of the things that we must do is to protect wild beings wherever whether it's delta smelt or coho salmon or a place like thacker pass or whether it's native redwoods, native banana slugs, they all need help.
2: What humans have been doing for starting about 8,000 years ago um, is a pattern called civilization. And we need to understand what civilization is. It's, so the root of that word is people living in cities. But what that actually means is that they need more than the land can give. So if you think about a city, I mean, it's just concrete or brick or, you know, there's, there's nothing else there but humans and buildings, right? So what that means is that um, the food, the water, the energy, everything has to come from somewhere else. So from that point forward, it doesn't matter, you know, what lovely, nonviolent, peaceful values people might hold in their hearts, that that society is dependent on imperialism and genocide, because the city has to go out and get that stuff from somewhere else and then bring it back. And nobody willingly gives up their land, their water, their trees, their fish. Um, so, f- once that's set in motion, you then also have an entire class of people whose job is war. So, their job is to go out and get that stuff, to conquer your neighbors, turn them into colonies, bring some of them back as slaves, because this is all backbreaking labor, um, and take their stuff. And that's been the pattern for you know, the last 8,000 years around the globe. And it used to be a more human scale of civilization. So those original civilizations were mostly city-states, um, then they get a little bit bigger. They're more like empires. But you know at the end of the day, it's still they could only get so big. And that's for two reasons. One is because you could only bring stuff in from so far away when all you had was draft animals and humans. And also the military orders and the supply lines could only get so big before they broke. With the invention of the internal combustion engine, all of that changed. So, for instance, Rome—ancient Rome—was only going to get so big. The most of northern Europe was fairly protected from Rome because of the Alps. There was just no way to get over those mountains. Um, that's all gone now. I mean, this, the whole thing has gone completely global, and it's rabid on a global scale. Um, So the fate of every civilization, there have been 34, and the fate of them is they collapse, okay? And it's not a pretty process, but that's where they end. Um, They generally last between 800 and 2,000 years. They last until the soil gives out, and then it's over. And the soil gives out because the basic activity of all civilizations is agriculture. In order to do that, you have to clear the land. So every last living creature is removed from that land, and I mean down to the bacteria, and then that land is just used to grow humans on it. But it creates a surplus temporarily. And that surplus is what makes the military possible. It's what makes the city possible. It's because now way fewer people have to be involved in making the food and you can store some of it for the future. Um, they're also extremely vulnerable to things like famine. So that that's when uh, hunger becomes a feature of human life. Before that, hunter gatherer times it might have been periodic at the end of winter. You'd have a, you know, a few weeks where everybody might be a little bit hungry, but it's not famine. Uh, and you knew food was coming again. So all of that changed. So agriculture just has destroyed the planet. It's destroyed human culture. It's destroyed human health. Nobody really even knows why we started doing it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but here we are. So that's been the pattern now. So if you, if you can picture a football field in your brain, the size of a football field, Our time on earth as humans is the entire length of that field until the last half a yard. Okay, at half a yard is where the disaster begins. That's when this pattern starts to take hold. The last one fifth of an inch would be the industrial revolution. So for all the rest of that time, we were not monsters and destroyers. We were like every other creature. We took our nourishment from inside biotic communities. We didn't impose ourselves across them and we lived good lives. We actually had really good health, we generally had perfect dentition, there's a whole bunch of diseases that are just never seen in the archaeological record, and we even have a concept that's, quote, the diseases of civilization, because when we switched our food to this totally other way of life, um, human health just collapses. People shrink six six inches and their teeth start falling out immediately, Um, and that's what you find around the globe. And then you also see the kinds of hierarchies that evolve because of course the richest people in every one of those civilizations would often still have full human stature and fairly good dentition. And then the people further down just get shorter and shorter and their bones are crumbling and their joints are falling apart and they've lost all their teeth. So you can see the hierarchy of the slaves and the laborers and all of that. So all of this is what's happened um, from this activity of agriculture which makes the pattern called civilization. So if we wanna talk about where that started that's it. And another thing to throw in there is that's probably the origin of patriarchy as well. And it's not to say that every single hunter-gatherer is you know, a marvelous culture, but um, the idea that private property has to be passed down through the male line. First of all, you have to have private property, but the only way you're gonna do that um, is if women's sexuality is controlled, if reproduction is controlled. And the only way men can know who their children are is to completely control women. Women don't have that problem. We know if we've had a baby. Um, but until genetic testing came along, DNA, you know, you could do the paternity test. Men didn't know. So women become, um, you know, enslaved, essentially, and, and their lives have to be severely curtailed so that they can't have the kinds of freedoms just to participate in public life. So all of that happens as civilization develops. And here we are at the end of it. We've got militarism. We've got slavery. We've got you know, male-dominated cultures. We've got racism. All of this comes as a package deal. Uh, the moment that you destroy your land pace, the rest of it is basically inevitable. So that's that's my TED talk. Um, <laughs> what can we do about it? Well, there's a few things. Number one, we have to stop destroying. Um, I mean, we can talk about what we have to do to repair the planet. Honestly, the planet will repair itself. We don't have the capacity to do that. All the other creatures that are involved in creating a biotic community—you know—from the bacteria of the soil to the deep-rooted. Very perennial plants to the towering redwood trees, all of these creatures, they know how to do it. They work in concert, they all evolve together, they all have to be there, and then they will do it. And they come home very quickly. The moment that destruction stops, the moment that humans lay down those weapons of war, life comes back. And it comes back at an extraordinary pace sometimes, uh, things that I never thought I would see I've seen, um, simply because people stop destroying and let the land heal itself. If it hasn't been pushed too far. If it hasn't, yes. I mean, but even desert can be recovered. I mean, I've seen, I'm not...
0: Well, the point is, I, I don't want people, I don't want people to, to push the attitude. I don't want people to take from this, oh, we don't have to worry about it because the earth will be okay. And um, if it's pushed too far, it, it, it won't.
2: Life only evolved within a really narrow range of atmospheric conditions, and we are blowing through every one of those boundaries. So... For instance, the plankton populations are collapsing in the ocean. Plankton isn't normally a creature that anybody cares about because they're very small. We can't really see them um, and nobody much cares that you know, they don't have a magnificence to most people that say a bear or an elk or a polar bear or you know, a lion. I mean, you know, we all feel stirred when we see those really magnificent creatures but plankton have their own magnificence. And two out of three animal breaths right now, the oxygen comes from plankton, and I want that to settle in because if the oceans go down, we're going down with them. You and I cannot make oxygen. So our lives depend on the, on the plankton. And right now, the, their populations are collapsing because the oceans are too acidic, and they've become so acidic because of all the carbon. So the oceans have been acting as this huge carbon sink, trying to keep the atmosphere balanced somehow by absorbing the carbon, but it means that it changes the pH of the ocean. And these creatures that have been living there for millions of years can't survive anymore because it's beyond the conditions that, that life can support. So that's the problem. You know, every day that goes by, we're closer and closer breaching those biotic limits that, you know, the, that's where life evolved. And so things like oxygen, the atmosphere, the temperature, we all know the planet's getting hotter. There will come a point when the planet is simply too hot and that's going to be it. So,
0: you know a body can take a tremendous amount of damage and its capacity for self-repair is extraordinary. You know, you can get a terrible hack on your arm and you don't have to do anything to, for it to repair. The, the body itself, well, it depends on who you is. If you use the body then, but your mind, you don't have to consciously think about it. The body will fix itself. But if you push it too far, you know, once, once the brain activity stops, once the heart activity stops for a certain amount of time, doesn't matter what you do. It's not going to repair. And it's the same with all of these, that you can do tremendous harm to Yellowstone and then bring the wolves back in and miracles occur. Or you can bring beavers back in and miracles occur. You can bring salmon back in and miracles occur. Or they come in on their own. Um, but if it's pushed too far, it reaches a new stable state, which which can be complete lack of biotic activity which can be death but 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 there are miracles and another miracle i want to mention is that there is one dead zone there are more than 450 dead zones in the ocean and one of them has recovered and it was in fact the worst and largest and it's in the black sea and it recovered because the soviet union collapsed which made agricultural activities no longer economically feasible along that part of the coast of the black sea and Within about 15 years, there was a commercial fishery there again, because the fish had come back so much. Um, One of your great lines is life wants to live. And if we just let it, it will.
2: So another example of this is Chernobyl, which stands in as, you know, the best and the worst, really, because every creature there has genetic damage. There's no way around it. On the other hand, there are apex predators there that have had not been seen in 100 years uh, including multiple packs of wolves, not just one, multiple packs of wolves and you know herds of the wild horses and the wood bison and like really like top level kinds of creatures and megafauna that need huge amounts of food essentially. And they're, they're, it's healthy enough that they're there. And what this says is that even a nuclear disaster is better for the planet than the daily grind of human civilization. The people left and that's why everything came back. And I don't even want to say all the people because there are still some people there. Um, There were a bunch of old people, particularly old women who refused to leave and they're still there and they're not hurting anything. I mean, that's the thing. They're just surviving with all these other creatures in the way that you know peasants, especially women, have always done. So they're taking care of their own basic needs, but they're not hurting anything. Uh, They're just getting their food. And so they're still there. Um, And it's just amazing to hear about kinds of creatures that can that will that will make the place whole again and and they're doing that so and and again it's not like i'm holding up you know a nuclear disaster as the way forward but this is what happens when humans stop when we simply stop the destruction life life can come back and so my one of my biggest hopes is the amount of carbon that can be sequestered by grasslands and the world's grasslands have been utterly devastated by agriculture so they went from very dense communities of perennial plants, usually with ruminant, a ruminant cohort like, like bison you know, on the American plains um, to simply, you know, they're monocrops now for humans. So it's soy and wheat and corn and all of that life is gone. So there were at one point probably 60 million bison and now there's 1200 left. So that's the level of devastation. But when you let the grasses come home um, with their appropriate ruminant cohort, the amount of carbon that they can store is really, it's a, its miraculous. So it would take somewhere between 10 and 15 years, um, it, but if we could restore even 80% of the world's grasslands around the world, um, we could sequester all of the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the industrial age. That's how much topsoil those plants and animals could grow. So like, I'm not out of hope. That's what we have to do. The destruction has to stop and, we have to do what we can to help help bring these creatures back home and then let them do their work. And we may have a livable planet at the end of it.
4: Is there anything else that any of you would like to cover that I haven't asked you yet?
2: I mean, we could go into the population thing, because a lot of times people get weirded out by that. Okay. If you want us to do a little riff on that, we can do that. Yeah. So the other thing that that is involved in all of this that many people are anxious to discuss is human population. there's two different issues. One is the number of people and one is of course the amount that people consume. So the wealthy countries certainly are are way more um, guilty in all of this just because of the level of consumption but there are still too many people. I mean, at this point there's 7 billion people on the planet. Um, At the beginning of the industrial age, there were 1 billion. So 6 billion people have been added since then mostly because of fossil fuel and it's very direct. I mean, we're eating oil, that's how we did it. All the nitrogen in all the plants that goes into all of our food, it it all comes from oil and gas. So somewhere around 50% of the nitrogen in any human body right now on the planet is from oil. So I mean, we're literally eating oil, okay? So that's how that was done. And we're gonna run out. I mean, whether you wanna believe all the rest of what we're saying, it's completely immaterial to me because this is just the fact that fossil fuel is going to come to an end. We are on the downslope of that curve and we're going to run out. Like it doesn't reproduce. That's the end. So it, you know, the moment you start using something that, that can't be replaced, that doesn't, you know, actually there's no sustainable level because you're going to get to zero eventually if it's something that doesn't that there's not any more of. So it's not, this is not in any way could, could have been sustainable. And I'm not really sure why people went down this path. It doesn't really make a lot of sense because this day was going to come. It was built into the beginning. So anyway, now we've got these 7 billion people and they all need to eat and drink and they would like a little bit of comfort along the way. So they're going to consume something. Um, you know, as it stands, we're not going to have enough food when this is all said and done because the oil's going to run out. Well, so people start to panic and there have absolutely been some fairly evil political campaigns in the past to try to address you know what they call overpopulation or population control. And that's not what I'm talking about. Um, and that's why people get anxious about it, because some pretty awful things have happened, you know, in in service of that, and especially to women. I mean, it's women who generally bear the brunt of this. So I am not talking about the one child policy of China. I'm not talking about the forced abortions of Cuba. I'm not talking about any of that. Okay. It's, The way to fix this problem, this has been studied backwards, forwards and inside out. The number one thing that drops the birth rate around the world is really simple and it's teaching a girl to read. So when women and girls have even that much more power over their lives, they will choose to have fewer children. So the problem actually fixes itself. If we can give everybody full human rights, some power over their futures, enough food and basic security, it stabilizes, and as it turns out, most couples really only want about two children. So, all things being equal, so we have kind of a built-in, um, you know, that seems to be like just the number that everybody wants to settle on. There's always people who want more, and then there's going to be people who don't want any. But it really averages out to about two per couple. That seems to be sort of the built-in failsafe that that most people want. So, it fixes itself. Right now on this planet, half of the children who are born every single year. Half are either unplanned or unwanted. So all we have to do is give women some liberty and access to healthcare, and this problem will fix itself. And it just means we have to hold up women and girls. It's nothing evil has to happen. No bad decisions have to be made. Just let women and girls have full human rights. So this was never people against the planet. Like, you know, a lot of, I think that's sort of the the myth, little story that the sort of dystopian nightmare that we all think of, where it's, oh, there's just too many people and they just keep multiplying. And then you've got Swin and Green and like, we've all seen those movies. And that's not actually the story. It was never people versus the planet. It was always people plus the planet. So we just need full human rights. We just all need to be feminists and this will be okay. So, you know, again, there's, there's, Every reason to hope. As, as hard as the situation is, none of these solutions are impossible. None of them violate the laws of physics or chemistry, um, and none of them involve any kind of, you know, evil authoritarian power. It, it. Like, these are all things that we should want to do anyway. So it, I just, I just think that there's still a lot of hope here because it. We're not down to the wire where we need to do terrible things to each other for anybody to survive.
3: I would just add one thing, which is, you know, for people who discount that this is a problem, I think they really need to study some basic ecology. You know, they really need to study what the term carrying capacity of an ecosystem means. They need to study what the word overshoot means in a biological context. Um, in fact, there's a fantastic book called the Overshoot by William Catton, where he dives into this in detail. It's all about population, and uh, he does a great job of explaining these basic biological concepts. If you overshoot the carrying capacity of, uh, of a natural community, which means that if there are so many living things of whatever species, not just humans, that they are no longer at a sustainable level, but they're actually destroying each year, year after year after year, they're destroying, um, th- then you're reducing the ultimate carrying capacity of that, of that uh, ecosystem or that natural community. And you know this is really not complicated. I mean, we can all understand this. If you've seen a chicken living in a scratched out little dirt pen where there's not a blade of grass, you understand carrying capacity, right? There's too many chickens in that little pen for the land to sustain them. And so they're living off of imported grain, right, that somebody has to throw into them. There's not enough food in that area. Whereas if you have chickens, you know, living on acres and acres of land, then you might see wildflowers and grass and trees and all this other life living there because they're below the carrying, they're below or at the carrying capacity of the land. They're not destroying everything you're, at, you know, as time goes on. And you know, people need to recognize the scale of this problem too, because I just looked up the numbers while you were talking, Lear. Over the last less than three months. So, uh, you know, since January 1st, over 18 million people have been added to the total, total global population. That, that's a net of 18 million people. That's the equivalent of adding a new New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, and Phoenix in. The last less than three months right so you know the scale of the the populate the overpopulation issue is really serious and you know we we can't ignore that uh, really terrible history uh, around eugenics and population control and there's some really nasty stuff and nasty characters in there uh, but you know we can't we can't let the population issue just be associated with them we need to have you know upstanding, moral people who are willing to tackle these issues and talk about them in a serious adult way and and not fall back on those, you know, racist and sexist uh, methods that, that people did in the past. You know, we need to address these issues very seriously. And yeah, I completely agree with what Lear said. That's one of the multiple reasons why we all should be feminists.
0: Another accusation that's thrown at us quite often is because we care about salmon, because we care about banana slugs, because we care about redwoods, we are accused of being, and because we don't like wind and solar, we're accused of being anti-human, and I don't think that that's accurate at all, and part of the reason I don't think that's accurate at all is because any human's who are alive 100 years from now are going to inherit what we leave behind. And the humans in the future are not going to care about whether we were able to get Wi-Fi coverage at every hotel we ever stay at. And they're not going to care whether we were able to watch 750 streaming channels and they're not going to care about where our electricity came from. They're not going to care about any of that. What they're going to care about is whether they can breathe the air and drink the water and whether the land will support them. And I think one of the questions that always drives my work is I want to live and to write and to do all my work such that the people a hundred years from now don't hate me. And, and and likewise, with the after after the invasion of D-Day in World War II, many of the Germans who had been attempting to plot for 15 years or however many years or 13 years against Hitler asked themselves, should we quit? Because the war is over now. And so why should we risk our lives? when the war will be over soon. And one of the German generals who had been part of the resistance for many years said no, because there are 12,000 civilians dying every day. And so every day we can stop this war sooner is that many civilians we've saved. And in addition, we have to prove to the world and to history that there were some Germans who did not go along. And there were some Germans who resisted this. And likewise, I want to prove to the non-humans living now and to some of the humans living now and to the humans in the future that there were some of us who cared and that there were some of us who resisted and there were some of us who fought for a livable planet.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Earth to Humans podcast. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. And today's episode was guest produced by Julia Barnes and me, senior producer Serena Simons. Bright Green Lies is available anywhere books are sold. And you can learn more information about the book and the film at brightgreenlies.com. If you liked what you heard, hit that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on all things earth to humans. For show notes of today's episode, visit wildlensinc.org slash ETH227. Next week, Matt Podolsky and I will be bringing you a bonus episode with lots of exciting new updates, so be sure to keep an eye out for that. Our intro music was edited by Wildlands Collective member Jason Milligan, and music for today's episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for tuning in.